Welcome to the Enrollment Insights Podcast. In this podcast, our goal is to focus less on the promise of best practices and instead look for the processes and the questions that spark internal reflection and lead to novel solutions tailored to your institution. I am Angela Brown, Senior Enrollment Insights Leader at Niche, and today I'll be speaking with Jan Abernathy. Jan is the Chief Communications Officer at the Browning School, a K-12 boys' school in New York City. Formerly the Director of Marketing and Communications at the Elizabeth Murrow School in Inglewood, New Jersey, she has presented at conferences sponsored by the National Association of Independent Schools, the Council for the Advancement and Support of Education, the New Jersey Association of Independent Schools, and the New York State Association of Independent Schools. At Browning, Jan is a member of the Health and Safety Team, responsible for managing COVID response, and co-chaired the school's successful search for its new Director of Equitable Practice and Social Impact. At EMS, she also chaired the Equity and Justice Task Force, managed the school's participation in the NAIS Assessment of Inclusivity and Multiculturalism Survey, and led the school's New Jersey Association of Independent Schools reaccreditation. She is president of New York City Independent Schools Communications Professionals a professional association of over 100 members from schools throughout the tri-state area, and the co-founder of Black Advancement Networking Group, which works to gain further representation and greater professional growth of Black professionals in advancement roles in independent schools. Jan is the chair of Case NACE 2022, the most prominent international advancement conference in the independent school sector. A journalist by training, she has written for NAIS's independent school magazine on crisis communications in the winter of 2018 and the Black At movement in the winter of 2020. She is a trustee of Grace Church School, a JK-12 school in New York City, and was on the board of Stevens Cooperative School in Hoboken, New Jersey for 13 years, spending six years as chair. Her consulting firm, Jan Abernathy Strategic Communications, provides communications and DEI counsel for educational institutions and nonprofits. Her son, who is a member of Northwestern University's class of 2024, and her daughter, who is a member of Cornell University's class of 2020, are both graduates of Dalton School in New York. Jan lives in Hoboken, New Jersey with her husband, Jerome. Welcome to the podcast, Jan. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to talk to you today about this intersection of diversity work, communications, and enrollment management. But first, I want to start with our two questions that we ask every guest. The first one is, what is something you tried that didn't work and what did you learn? It's really funny that you asked me that question because the thing that I tried that didn't work was actually podcasting. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So surprisingly, right, when podcasts were first, you know, like really exploding, I guess this has got to be going back six years now or so, at Elizabeth Morrow, we decided that that was something that we wanted to try to do. Now, I come, I happen to come from a background where I used to do talk radio when I worked at Dow Jones. So it was, e- so it was very easy for me to embrace this concept. I love radio. Um, I love talking to people. So it's all good. The, the problem was, and, and communications directors know this, it's like accessing the content and creating the new content when you are relying on, because of course what we wanted to do is feature teachers, right? And feature teachers doing exciting and different things with their students in their classrooms. Come and talk about how we teach music. Come and talk about how we teach history, et cetera, et cetera. It was just too much work for a two-person shop, you know, when you think about, it's like what you do in post-production and cleaning it up and 
you know, uh, the noise and the, even the setting, sort of the setting up of the studio. I think that we did not count on how many pieces there were going to be to that particular thing. And then also on the flip side, right, how to market it, how to get people to listen to it, how to even mm -hmm. though it's very short, eight minutes, 10 minutes, something like that. It was it was a struggle. And we probably did, I don't know, six episodes or something. And then we just kind of let it go. So I think what I learned from that is if you're going to bite off more than you can chew, which is still something that we do all the time at the Browning School, make sure that you actually have 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 thought about workflows and thought about what you're what, what how you're going to maintain your content after the first few episodes, stories, whatever it is, where you're very excited about doing it. Think about what it's going to look like six months, nine months, a year from the the conception. Let's put it that way. I think that's great advice. And, and that actually applies to pretty much any other new thing right? that, that a communications Absolutely. director might want to dig into, or if your head of school or principal or superintendent comes to you and says, hey, we really need to do X, that's a pretty good thought process to go through across the board is to look at those resources, look at the plan, look at the why, and really think about whether or not this is something that you can take on. Absolutely. And, you know, for, for us too, it was not an idea. It wasn't an idea that we had. It was an idea that someone brought to us that we mm -hmm. were like, wow, this is a great idea. Um, probably if we had thought of the idea, we might have analyzed it more. And the other right. thing that it taught me was, you know, just because a division director or somebody comes to you with a great idea, do the same analysis that you would yeah. do if it was coming out of your own shop. Exactly. Exactly. That's great. The next question is, what practices do you use to brainstorm and bring new ideas into your work? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I was talking to my associate, Jeremy Katz, about this particular question, because, you know, it's one of those kinds of questions where somebody asks you, you know, how do you do what you do? And you sort of almost don't know. Um, we spend a lot of time, obviously, just talking with one another. We work as a team. We also try to look at creative ideas that are specifically outside of our industry. I mean, there's there's certainly a role for looking at what others, particularly I think others outside of your market are doing because there's those are really rich places to get ideas. If I'm looking at schools in Minnesota or I'm looking at schools in South Florida or just someplace that's so very different from my market, what are where, where can I find ideas there? But also looking at, for ideas outside, whether it's fashion, whether it's entertainment, whether it's something, you know, whether it's consumer goods, something that somebody is doing on a large scale and on a big budget and thinking about how to shrink that down to a school size has just been sort of interesting and just kind of being sort of out of the box about things. You know, one of the things that we did, um, you know, at, at Browning was when we strategized over what we were going to do during um, COVID, the idea of branding, you know, all of our response to that came just very naturally to us. I think just by kicking it around, like how can we make people feel like this is not completely deficient and 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 just horrible that we're going through this, you know, and, and so coming up with a branding scheme for when we were online and then again for when we were hybrid and then again when we were telling you about what it was going to be like when we came back into school, you know, and that's how we created Browning Connect and Browning Flex and, and Paths Forward. And those were branding schemes that, you know, we did a little bit of design for, but that, that were very much embraced to the point that, you know, the kids were saying, we're, we're in Browning Flex, we're in Browning Connect, whatever it is. So a lot of talking, a lot of, uh, you know, brainstorming with other colleagues outside of communications. And I think a lot of just looking at what the world is doing, how you, how you sell anything from, from soap to, 
the latest, you know, Marvel Universe movie or things that we would look at and discuss. That's great. I, I do think that's something that I certainly benefited from when I was on the other side of the desk, right, working inside um, in-house at a school. And you know that branding work is going well when the kids start saying it. That's Absolutely. A really, Absolutely. That's a phenomenal litmus test when you know that the messaging is really resonating when you start hearing it outside of the marketing office. That's Absolutely. When that's that's the key. Right. That's the key. That's the key. <laughs> That's great. So now we're going to get into the heart of our conversation. And it, it we're talking about diversity today. It has many names depending on the school that you're in. There's diversity, equity, and inclusion, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. We keep adding more words and acronyms. So for the purpose of, of this discussion, I think I'll shorten it for us to diversity knowing that so many things fall under that umbrella. But this is something that I think is very similar to branding and that it isn't often well-defined and people don't always recognize just how many things it touches and, and how broad and deep this work really is, especially in an educational institution. So I want to start by talking about what it is and what it is not. And I would love to hear how you define diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Yeah, um, you know, certainly I think that the, the most important thing for, for communications directors is to really know how your own institution defines it and whether or not that, that lines up with your values. I really look at it in terms of what we call it at Browning, right, which is equitable practices. So looking throughout the entire school, throughout the entire organization, is what we're doing equitable, you know, is what we're doing fair, sort of at, at the bottom line. And fair is, is each according to their own need, you know, not necessarily giving everyone the same thing, as we've all seen, you know, the graphic that shows the difference, you know, some of them are uh, children looking at a ball game behind a fence. Some of them mm -hmm. are, they have one with the giving tree, which is looking at like where the apples are falling and how quickly people can get fruit off of this tree if they're different heights, if their ladders are different heights. And all of that is, you know, well, a lot of people just think that what you do is you open up the opportunity, you open the doors to the school. And then everything else, as long as you're, so in other words, I think as long as you're not actively discriminating, right, you are, per, you're promoting equity. That's, mm -hmm. you know, that's not the case at all. You, you need to look at some data, you know, you need to look at everything from, you know, sort of discipline records to how people are getting promoted to how people are, are entering your school in terms of, um, you know, both the adults that work there. So how you are advertising, right? How you are hiring, all of those things are all combined to make it be it's beyond diversity right because you can always have the numbers I, I think all of our schools right. do a good job with getting the numbers um i think that the issue is what you do with folks once you get there in all of our schools i think that it's it's relatively easy to get the numbers right if you're if you're you know in a place um where the numbers are there to be gotten where there are students of color where you are doing the sort of the the right things to attract them which ps goes beyond offering financial aid. That's where a lot of places start and they just say, hey, well, if we want to get more kids of color, that must mean we need to pay for them to come here. That's like not the point. <laughs> um, the point is 
to really create an atmosphere for all community members, right, where there, there can be some real equality, some real equality of practice. Um, and that extends, you know, not only to our community members of color, it extends to whichever community members, um, you know, genders that are in the minority um, at your school, folks with differing abilities, all of that is all part of the puzzle. So I don't want to say that I know it when I see it or that it may differ by your institution, but your institution will have different needs in this area based on a whole lot of stuff from everything from sort of historically how it was founded to to the challenges that it may face in, in, in recruiting the right kind of students or the right cr- kinds of uh, faculty. Absolutely. And I, I do think that the important headline there is that it's nuanced. Mm-hmm. It's a nuanced discussion. It's something that lives in the gray. It's not necessarily black and white. And to a certain degree, it will look differently in different environments. You know, That's right. Different... And it's a discussion you need to be having all the time, you know, and yes. with everything, you know, so it, it's not just about hiring and saying, do we have the right people in the hiring pool? It might also be about looking at how we teach a math class, right? And whether if you're in a co-ed environment, whether the girls feel as much about, you know, feel feel as comfortable participating as the boys right. do. It's, you need to be vigilant, you know? It's like knowing how to do a fire drill or a lockdown drill or something like that. You can't really sleep on it. You can't pretend that you know how to do it. Like that's why we practice those things. And I think that's something that we really have to get better at in schools is actually practicing what does equity look like. That's great. So knowing that this is a very popular topic in K-12 education at the moment and A lot of schools are struggling with the message around how their schools are engaging in this work with all of the different constituencies that they serve. And and depending on, you know, what type of school environment you're in and, and how large your school community is, that can be really nuanced. So I'd love for you to share some practical advice for people working in communications and admissions as they're trying to navigate that challenge. Yeah, I think, I think, obviously, first of all, I think it's like educate yourself, right, and really work closely with, you know, most of our schools now, you know, have somebody who is doing DEI, you're so you more and more schools that did not have DEI officers now have them particularly in, in the wake of, you know, the racial reckoning, and George Floyd's murder. So that certainly is something since 2020, you see more schools hiring somebody um, to do that work, I think engaging deeply as a communications director with the person doing that work. And by that, I don't mean like, what are we going to put on Instagram for Juneteenth? I actually mean (laughs) a really deep and significant conversation and relationship right with that person is is key i think that in communications there there're not a ton of at least at, that i have seen certainly not in new york and and even in the rest of the country i have not seen a large number of folks who are in communications that being folks of color right or even folks from other marginalized experiences so understand if you are not one of those people you probably have got you you've got catch up right versus me who is a black woman right and and you got to do that catch up right to to be able to communicate it's just like anything else i didn't come into this work having been a teacher, right? So I need to understand what it is teachers do. I need to understand what their challenges are. It's not like I can just look from the outside and go, I've had a teacher. I've had teachers in my life. I must know what their experience is like. No, no, no. I I need to talk to them, right? Yeah. 
So yeah. I, I, you know, I need to, to, so that is, that's first and foremost, I think is like getting on the same page and really understanding what the challenges are at, at your school in terms of diversity, because you also have to know where the pain points are, right? To communicate anything, you have to be able to be, you know, authentic. So you have to be able to know what's really going on. You have to be able to know what is the aspiration for your school and your leadership in terms of where they want to be in this work. And you have to know the pitfalls, right? So you also have to know your leadership has a certain aspiration. Your DEI person can really tell you what is going on on the ground. I think, and those are like sort of key foundation. That's just like the foundation, you know, and then you're going to build your messaging however you're going to build your messaging. But that's foundational before you can sort of even start building the messaging. What you see is what people want is they want an elevator pitch. That's what everybody wants. Everybody wants a hack, right? Because we're too we're so busy. <laughs> We've got all this stuff to do. Just give me the hack. Let's just like, you know, like, here's what I say about athletics. Here's what I say about DEI. Here's what I say about, you know, academic rigor or whatever. You got to go deeper than the hack or you're going to, you're, you are not going to be, this is complex stuff, right? And a lot of times people are, they don't recognize, as you said, nuance. They don't recognize the nuance. They don't recognize the complexity. They think it can be boiled down. I really encourage people to just like, just accept that there are things that you cannot boil down, things that are ever changing. And, and we're really called as communications directors, especially now to be on top of this. You don't know where the next question or the next controversy is going to come with some of this stuff. So the the more educated you are about it, the just uh, the better you're going to be. It's going to be less stressful for you to to know yes. what you're doing when you talk about this stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I I love what you said about the importance of working very closely with the diversity practitioner in your school. And I want to dig into that a little bit more because you have such a unique perspective as someone who is leading communications at a school, but you're also very involved in the diversity work. You consult other schools in these areas. So what are some ways that communications and admissions professionals in schools can partner with the people who are working, who are leading diversity efforts so that they can stay on the same page, learn, and communicate about what's happening in the school effectively? Yeah, I think that, I mean, your diversity practitioner, particularly for, for admissions folks, enrollment folks, I mean, your, your diversity director and you should be working hand in glove. I mean, that person should be on your retention committee if you have one. They, that person, I presume in many places, is um, one of the admissions interviewers, right? That you should be inviting as an admissions person, inviting that person in to look at your procedures and processes, right? This is a huge part of what equity means, right? We can be equitable if we have a set of processes for admission to our schools that advantage some and disadvantage others. You know, have that conversation. Many of us have sibling preference. This is not, you know, this is not uncommon or alumni preference. My school has it. I'm not saying that it's bad. What I am saying is have a conversation. I'm, I'm saying have knowledge, right? You may still right. do certain things. You may still have certain traditions, but have knowledge. That should not be unquestioned, right? It's like what's going through, um, what's going on now in higher ed in terms of legacy admission, right? At my son goes to the same college that I went to. I may like legacy admission. I still understand the issues, right? And the problems problems with legacy right. admission for a first gen person. So I think that sometimes in schools, 
we don't always want to dig in because we think that, you know, we, we know we're probably not going to like the answer and maybe somebody's going to make us change that thing that we're doing. But mm-hmm. I very much encourage people to, to have that person sort of, equi- you know, analyze and audit your processes with that kind of lens because you may see something that's really different and you may see places in which you want to change because you truly didn't know that it was inequitable and it, it's no, it doesn't really matter to you if you change it, you know, there's sometimes like we have stuff that's just like, you know, every interview for second graders is going to be at 10 a.m. Cause that's because, you know, the person who does them wants to get in, set up for the day, have her a second cup of coffee, whatever it is. Maybe we do those at 8.30 and they're, maybe we do them at 8 a.m., right? And they're a lot more equitable for the family who lives farther away and the parents are commuting farther out still, right? So some of those kinds of things. And I think that the DEI professionals are really open to that and are really sometimes nervous about going, you know, they don't want to go in uh, barrels blazing and say, you know, hey, here's how you're doing all this stuff wrong. So inviting them inside and saying, hey, look at what I'm doing. Is is this okay? Can you look at our processes? What do you think about this? How can this be better? How can we work to make this better, right? To promote the mission of our school, to get us closer to our pillars or our core values or, or whatever we call those things. I think that that's, that's usually important. And be a friend, you know, I have often said in workshops that I've given on this topic, it's like one of the, the easiest ways to partner with your TEI person is to be actually advancing equity in your school, right? So if, yes. if you know, I mean, it's just like communications, people love folks that understand like, hey, I'm really trying to market the school here and here's what I did. <laughs> we love that, right? It's like, tell me more, right? DEI person's the same way. So don't, maybe don't always be that person who's like hanging back in the leadership meeting when you see something that could be made more equitable and you don't say anything because like, you know, he or she's in the room and that's that's really their job. No, it's all of our jobs. And if you if you show in your behavior it's all that it is actually your job, you're going to make a friend out of your DEI person, I guarantee you. That's great. And I, I I remember going through some of those exercises, even if it was a matter of a message that we needed to send to respond to someone, checking in and saying, you know, is this the right language? Are we thinking through this the right way? What are some resources that we can share? You know, I, I, there are just, there are so many ways to go back to the the branding analogy that that this work is woven into everything that a school does. It's a lens that you should use as you're looking at policies, to your point, as you're looking at curriculum and and making sure not just that diverse voices are being heard in programming and, and, and all of that, but also that students with different learning styles can access information. You know, I, I think what's unfortunate about the word diversity is that it can be misinterpreted to represent just one thing. Absolutely. It's a lot of things. It's gender, it's socioeconomic status, it's learning style, it's location. You know, it's Mm -hmm. to to your point about students who live further away and, and creating 
better pathways for them to access the admissions process, it really is important to think about it holistically. Exactly. And I mean, I will tell you exactly who understands that, right, is is kids, right? So, you know, I work with a school that, that is just a high school. And um, the, the the teenagers, like, totally get this, right? So they're not, they're like, okay, you know, here's here's the ways in which things are not perfect for, for BIPOC folk, but we've also got gender issues. We've also got socioeconomics. Right. Very, very interested is something that's different between this generation and I would say even the millennial generation is a recognition about mental health and neurodiversity that's no longer a source of shame, right? But rather a source of identity. I think yes. that is really different, right? I have a 23-year-old and a 19-year-old. And I think that's really, really different with this generation of Zoomers versus even the millennials who might be very reluctant to share any kind of way in which, you know, I mean, learning centers used to be tucked in the corner, right, of our yeah. schools. And it's like, oh, well, you know, this person's going to the learning center. I saw the shift between my two children when I was interviewing, when we were, when my son was interviewing, the younger one was interviewing for high schools, that the learning center became a stop on the mm. admissions tour. That was very different, right? Because yeah. when you're coming into a K-12 school, as a ninth grade student, you know, it was known you were not there to suck up resources like that was the idea in people's <laughs> right. heads, right? You know, they've got enough, you know, neuroatypical kids that they let in at kindergarten and didn't know mm -hmm. about, right? Versus mm -hmm. they're not bringing you in. So the fact that they were taking all kids that were in eighth grade and saying, like, here's where you can come to get help from the perspective of a marketing professional, I saw that as huge. I was like, huh, that's really a change, you know, whereas with my daughter four years before, so she was class of 2016 out of high school, it was the diversity conversation. So it was yeah. maybe an affinity group conversation because that was just starting to like peek out of the covers. Like we, we want to promote it versus like we kind of have it over here and, and you'll learn about it when you come into the school. So right. um, yeah. So I, I think it's really, yeah, I don't, I don't think any teenager today would be, they don't really feel some kind of way about getting learning support. Like, that's fine. They don't feel some kind of way about getting me mental health support. That's fine. So I think those are those are kind of some of the new frontiers for our schools, right? And the neurodiversity piece is very hard because for admissions and enrollment professionals, they're often concerned that that will then equate with a lack of academic rigor yes. or like, you know, that the other people, that parents don't want their kids in a school where there are too many people people that have learning issues, learning challenges, right. whatever they would call it. Right. So that's yep. still, we've still, we've definitely got some work uh, to yeah. do around those issues in independent schools. I completely agree. I completely agree. And, and I've seen that firsthand. And it's, it's interesting because when this episode drops, where we're having this conversation early in November of 2021, and it's just ahead of the release of our survey results from our parent survey. And we looked at how parents are searching for schools going into the fall of 2021 across segments. We looked at preschool, K-8, to high school, and college. And it's been really interesting because we added questions about social-emotional learning. We added questions about student and faculty diversity because we wanted to see, you know, are these things that we're hearing about them in the news? And we wanted to see if they were rising to the surface in terms of areas of importance for families looking at schools. And 
that's exactly what happened. And so it's really interesting, particularly in the in the K to eight age group, which which I also thought was was interesting. Diversity is actually something that a lot of families said is important to them. And I think sometimes in these conversations, anything that's difficult in a school environment, it's the loudest families that tend mm-hmm. to drive the conversation. And so I, I do want to point that out as schools are looking at this issue, because even if you're hearing the most from members of your community who might be uncomfortable with this topic, or there's a lack of understanding around this topic, there is a desire for that. There, There is a, a group of people who are actively looking to engage in diverse communities. Well, I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that what a lot of our schools, you know, most of our schools in the independent school sector are not like my school in kind of the heart of, you know, one of the biggest cities in the country. Many of our schools are suburban schools, right? Or sometimes even exurban schools. In those cases, people may find a more diverse experience within an independent school than within within their local district, right? Because their local district is is, is are most times formed by the residential neighborhoods around those districts. And we all know that folks live in fairly segregated neighborhoods, right, right unfortunately, in the United States of America. So where, where I worked in Inglewood, New Jersey, you know, absolutely, there were, you know, sort of majority Asian districts and majority white districts and majority black districts. But where people were coming together were in those independent schools. So recognize sometimes when families are making a choice and going into one of our schools without a, you know, without some kind of legacy or alum relationship, and they're they're coming from blue ribbon districts, right? That's right. part of the reason. That's part of the reason because the the public school that's four blocks away, it's great, you know. And this is, I mean, we're talking kindergarten families. We're not talking, you know, families that are going into ninth grade that want thirty APs. So kindergarten's right. completely <laughs> fine, you know. Kindergarten's <laughs> fine at their local school, but they know they went to that kindergarten tour and everybody a lot of times everybody was just like them you know whatever race they were that like everybody was just like them and they said hey i want something different for my kid so I don't think that's unusual at all. I also think that the Gen X generation, of which I'm part of, hasn't caught up necessarily with the fact that the millennial generation is just more, much more diverse, much more likely to be intermarried, much more likely to, you know, to to claim diversity. And actually, the, the diversity is one of their core things that they're looking for in everything, right? Yeah. So sometimes also, too, your loud voices are, you know, those high school families, those families that might have already had two or three kids go through yes. the school, yes. you know, and that's, it's, it's hard to here, but they are not the families of the future. They're not the voices of the future. And that's something that we need to keep in mind. Yeah, the age group difference there was very interesting. Um, Both K to eight families and high school families had a really big interest in social emotional learning, which I think is particularly telling just coming not necessarily out of the pandemic, but through it. (laughs) And after a year of isolation, we're in the third school year that's been impacted by COVID. And so I, I do think it's important for schools to really think about not just what's happening today, right now, but the families that are coming up the ranks and what's important to them, because it's absolutely being reflected in the data. 
Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm sure it's not surprising. You know, that's that's not surprising to me at all. And even sometimes when people are, you know, the other thing is that we we can see that people are curious about it or that people may have questions about it. And I think oftentimes um, admissions and enrollment folks don't know where those questions are coming from. Like they don't know if those questions are because the person doesn't want to see diversity work or does, you know, they're right. not tipping their hand in that way. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes we have the belief if someone's asking about it, it's because they don't want it. It's because they're they're anti-CRT or whatever it is. Right. right but sometimes right. they don't want it. They're just sometimes a question is just a question. Right. That That's a great point. That's an excellent point. So coming back to the question about messaging, and I, I've certainly been in this position too. So school communicators can often find themselves in these positions where they have to either combat misinformation about a school's diversity work, or they have to respond to a crisis, whether it's something that happens internally, or they have to react to something that happens in the news, which you and I have definitely been through before. <laughs> there are probably lots of people nodding their heads as they're listening. So independent schools saw this. This was a big one with the Black at social media movement, which I know you've written about in the summer of 2020. And just about every school of every kind has seen this challenge with programmatic changes or curricular changes or rumored programmatic mm -hmm. <laughs> curricular changes, or even something that's just happening in the news that people are hearing about and are having a strong reaction to that's causing some tension in the community. So when something like this comes across your desk, how do you even begin to unpack that and, and think about next steps? Yeah, I think, you know, certainly the 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 standard the standard playbook for crisis works here. I think where, you know, I may have a leg up is that I am not, you know, I'm not intrinsically afraid of any of these issues. And I like, and I have background, right? I just have background because of my identity and because I had kids in these schools and stuff like that. So, so I'm starting off for, I'm not, I'm maybe starting off from a different place, right? Than some of your listeners, but you think about what you do in a crisis first, right? It's just like, the first thing you do is just calm down. like, <laughs> And, and, you know, I come from a journalism background, right? So one of the things that, that I'm able to do is get a lot of information quickly and crank something out, right? I mean, that yep. is something that they teach you in journalism, you know, who, what, when, why, and how, and then, then you've got everything you need to like write a story, right? many times my colleagues did not come from that kind of background or they come from a marketing background. And what can happen in some of those cases is you, sometimes people actually believe I can't do this. I can't, I don't know how to do this. I can't do this. I just freeze. Right. So that, that is a, that's the thing that definitely happens and that they also don't, there's not enough of awareness. I think really Angela, the idea that the clock is ticking. And that's something mm. that I always reinforce to people. I reinforce when I give these kinds of talks or, or workshops or whatever, the clock is actually ticking. So, yep. you know, yep. it is, you know, certainly you want to have a, a crisis communications plan in place. You want to try to work that plan, you know, every single time that you have a crisis, but you know, there's speed, speed is time is of the essence, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so you need to gather the facts, like what is, you know, what are people objecting to what happened, you know, you, in the case of teacher says something in the classroom, right, then you need to go to, you know, whomever you would normally go to, let's say you report to your head of school, whatever, you say, look, what exactly happened? What did she say? What was the movie that was shown? What, you know, you get all your get all your facts first, right? And then you think about what is what is the, you know, kind of what is the 
best case scenario of, of why this happened, what is the worst case scenario of why this happened. It, things are probably in between. What are people upset about right now and how can we address what they're upset about? I'm never a fan of kind of pussyfooting sort of around the issue. You know, tell, like, it's like, tell people, I mean, that's a classic kind of crisis communications, right? Tell people what happened, tell them what you're going to do to fix it. If, if you don't know yet, then tell them you don't know. And then when they can yeah. expect to hear from you again, right? So yeah. I don't find that this functions differently. I mean, we had other crises before all of this happened. Um, and I didn't, we were, I should mention, we were not black added at Browning, but we also did very quickly some work in terms of getting together a, a focus group of our black alums and then later our alums of color. So we heard from them before they didn't have to come shouting at us. We right. Right. We heard, we heard from them very quickly when the movement was new. But I did consult with a school on this. And, you know, I think it's both the um for the Black Ant movement, it was, of course, people not knowing um, how on earth, you know, what was going to happen next, what was going to happen the next day, who was going to say what, people getting very emotional about it, you know, that's mm -hmm. another place. So it's like, if as much as I think a communications director can do to just sort of be um, a calm, reassuring presence, and to also just say to people, like, we now we have to step out of being upset because I'm not a racist. You know, that's that's kind of what happened. And people just sort of like fell apart and just like these people are accusing, you know, me, history teacher, head of school, director of admissions of being a racist and I'm not. And so then I can't deal with it. Well, we have right. to deal with it because we have to we have to address it, right? Yes. So in in those ways, I feel like my reporter's background has, you know, given has stood me in good stead, and particularly in this last couple of years, because COVID is the same type of Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Yeah, same type of thing, essentially. So I think that it's it's a matter of, you know, one person communicating, that ultimately should be the communication shop, the director of communications, chief person, whoever, who's going to be the spokesperson, what do we know, what are, you know, if there's a, if there's a problem, what happened? and what is our response? And if we don't know what our response is gonna be right now, or we have not gone, you know, it's, it's something that requires a multi-step response. When can people hear from us? And apologizing, right? Apologizing, yes. that's something that people don't always wanna get into. One of, the, one of the mistakes that I think people can do is they can bring lawyers into a process that they don't need to bring lawyers into really early. A lot of, and some schools, I understand they have a policy like this, like, you know, here's a crisis. We get our crisis communications, you know, firm on board. Mm -hmm. So some people do that, they get their firm and then they get their lawyer. And then what their lawyer is gonna say is, don't apologize because then someone can sue you. Right. But if you don't apologize, like it, it will literally never be over. It's it's very hard to have something be over if you're not yes. accountable, right? And that's something that schools need to, you know, need to think about and that their leadership needs to work out. Like, would we ever, uh, you, you can't switch off and turn into like a business the second that something goes bad, right? And even mm -hmm. businesses will apologize. Like, it's like, you can't stonewall. You don't want to just stonewall and say, um, you know, we're, I mean, the worst obviously is to say you have no comment, but beyond that, just sort of to, to address what you're going to do next without holding yourself accountable, I think is a, is a huge mistake. And holding yourself accountable can just pay really good dividends reputationally. You know, what we what we did was we when we went out and asked for our black alum to be in touch with us, you know, we said, we know your experience was 
probably, you know, was not perfect, right? We understand that you may have stories that we, you need to tell us and that we need to hear. And that was hugely impactful for those guys. I mean, and, and they have now, they have an organization, we have a scholarship named after our first black graduate. They are working in a mentorship program with our, our older guys. You know, it's been really great. And I think some of that just came right from stepping out in front of it. That's great. There, there's so much good stuff in what you just said. And I, I think the 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 urgency is something that I want to hover on a little bit sure. because I, I do think that sometimes in schools we can get stuck. And to go back to your earlier point about how people want, they want the hack, they want the playbook, um, a lot of questions that I've seen in groups that I belong to over the last few months have very much been in that vein of, I have this problem. What's, does anyone have the template? Where's mm -hmm. the, if you had to send out, and I, I think that goes back to the importance of having a crisis communication plan. If you don't have one, please create one. Exactly. If you do have an external firm that, that works with your school on these issues, ask them to share that with you because that's something that every school absolutely has to have. And you won't, having a communications or crisis communications plan doesn't mean you will have the exact playbook for every single possible scenario, but it will give you a framework so that you can take action when you need to. And, and I, I don't think that people realize often enough just how often that that clock is sticking it's absolutely ticking and that's where i think it's also important for schools to empower the people who are on the front lines of communication to be able to act that's exactly. another thing that that can be a challenge if you are a director of communications or a public information officer whatever your title is and you have to wait on an external firm to be able to develop a strategy and get a message out that can actually be a little bit of a hindrance. And so, oh, it's yeah, it absolutely can be. I mean, you, you bring in a firm, you know, certainly to kind of cover, you know, it obviously help you with your own blind spots and it kind of gives you, you know, it gives, sure. certainly as a communications director kind of gives you cover, right? You're not the only person out there that is giving advice on this particular thing, but I completely agree with you. I don't necessarily think, I think that very much has to be a collaboration and I can totally see based on schools that I know and cultures that I know, I, you know, you know, if you've done this work for a while, you can see the release that was written by a firm, right? You can yes. see the thing that's just like, you didn't, nobody from the school did anything except saying like, yes, this is good to go, you know, stick yep. it on our letterhead. You cannot, I mean, I, I just don't think you can be an effective school communicator in this day and age if you don't know crisis. That is like, Absolutely. that is the single most important, because that's going to be where the rubber hits the road. Like, ultimately, I don't care how great your Instagram feed is. I don't care, like, you know, how good your inbound marketing strategy is. So who's going to handle the crisis, right? And yeah. it's, it's got to be us in the comms department. So it's, you really have got to, to think about how you would go through those steps. Think about how you would get better at that job. Think about where your, um, where your proclivities lie in terms of, you know, are you somebody who can stay calm in this kind of situation? Are you somebody who is very, you know, can quickly gather information? Are you somebody who can write quickly? If you, if you aren't that person, is there somebody else in your shop who is, you know, yes. all of those things you should be able to know, like, Somebody should be able to throw something at you and you should say, okay, here's what's going to happen next. Because often the after the crisis happens, the person who says, here's what's going to happen next is the person that's going to lead the school 
through that crisis. And communications just has a huge strategic role to play in that. I completely agree. And I think, you know, if, if there are heads of school or senior administrators who are listening, please think about this as you are recruiting directors of communications, because, you know, I think a lot of the time in job descriptions, you see things like telling the story of the school and multi-channel marketing and all of those things are great. But what the last couple of years have taught us is that you really need someone in place who can not just respond to the crisis when it comes up inevitably, but lead through a crisis. I think that's very important. Exactly. And that's really what comms directors, good comms directors become. They become somebody that is in the room that is really leading and leading the response. And I would also say to, um, you know, to, to colleagues, heads of school, et cetera, who are hiring folks is, you know, a great way. I mean, obviously the behavioral sort of question is great for this, where you, where you're actually giving the candidate the crisis and saying, here's what you would do. And I've seen those, I've, I've had that experience of having those kinds of interviews. And for me, what I would be listening for is actually then the questions that the candidate is going to ask me after I've yes. given the scenario, right? So I, I wouldn't be looking for the person to say, okay, here's what I would do. I would be looking for the person to ask me 10 questions about that scenario that I just laid out with, you know, what, what, and whatever it is, because, because that's the, that's how they should then be formulating. Now, here's what we're going to do. Right. Yep. If, if they're just saying, here's what we're going to do. I don't know that they've got enough information that if you've laid out a simple case, they got to ask questions about the case first and then they can tell you what their advice would be. Um, and it really gives you because I would say that when people have not had a lot of a lot of experience in this they don't number one they don't know they don't know what they don't know so they don't sometimes know how to ask those questions and number two you know you're going to be in a world of hurt like if you have a communications director that can't sort of jump into this fray because i think we're just we're it's it's like how they say in advancement we just go from one campaign to the other i think in (laughs) in communications we really are just going from one crisis to the other because it's a crisis for someone you know we never really thought oh well dei work is going to end up being a crisis and you know, yet here we are, right? Yeah. COVID, you know, you would never give a case that was, you know, about how to deal with a global pandemic that puts everybody out of school for a year. That that would be crazy talk. Like you would never, yeah. and yet here we are. You know? <laughs> That's true. Here we are. That's great. That's great. So to bring it back to diversity work for school leaders who are new to this topic, whether they've been in the education world for a while and and it's just, it's getting a little hotter, you know, given the, mm-hmm. the broader climate um, or, you know, they're, they're brand new to schools. What are some resources or professional development opportunities that you would recommend? Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the things that I think can be interesting for a lot of, for, for school leaders, for communications folks is not, I don't know how much other communications people do this because I was always doing, when I was Elizabeth Moore, I was kind of always doing both jobs. Getting into getting into professional development that really is just doesn't have anything to do with communications, but it's just really some basic, you know, a lot of our uh, state associations offer this kind of a diversity one, two, three, you know, some of this, uh, kind of a basic primer. So you're going to know the terms, you're going to know some frameworks, you're going to more than dipping in and out of what I see people doing a lot is, you know, maybe Clint Smith is speaking or Robin D'Angelo is speaking or, you know, somebody is speaking and, you know, the, our associations bring them in and, 
the whole team from school goes. I think I think more more productive is to really kind of do some of the kinds of things that people would do if they were new to the work in the diversity office, right? Because then it's a little bit more like thinking like a diversity officer, right? And so not necessarily the the academic pieces because we're not on the academic side, but there's huge, huge amount of offerings now that are just about how to do this work at schools. And it can be valuable. Now, it may be a challenge, you know, budgetarily within your school to sort of convince the folks that you work for that it's important for you to, to take these courses. But in the same way, I think that it's important, you know, it would be important for me to go to a conference that's about boys education, right? And right. just kind of soak that up. I'm a big believer in kind of soaking things up in that way. Diversity conference in your town that you, or or a diversity conference online that you can access for, for not a prohibitive amount of money, go to that. I've had very interesting, seen very interesting uh, webinars brought to me both by the university that I attended, Northwestern, and also my daughter's university, Cornell. I mean, Cornell, E. Cornell does a great, and they're free, it's done a great series of, of webinars that are about DEI. So I think getting into the larger topic at a very kind of 101, 102 level can be really valuable for communications officers. Because then if you're a good communications officer too, is what it does is starts percolating in your mind and you start thinking about questions and thinking about ways to ask more. And you get more familiar with the terminology, right? Which is which is different than our terminology. And also how to break that down so that folks can, can understand it. Because I think if you don't, understand the discipline, right? It's just like anything else. It is it is then that much harder to communicate about it because you really don't have the you don't have the understanding. And for many of us, depending on how old you are, it's not like you did this in school. You know, it's not like you right. have some basis like you don't like history or math or athletics or whatever. Yeah, most of us were not in affinity groups in high school. You know, they didn't exist. So you have to get that information from from somewhere. And I think that those kinds of conferences, webinars, you know, things that you would not necessarily be attracted to because they're not telling you again how to you know here's your TikTok strategy but there are things you need to know about if you want to continue to do work in our schools that's excellent advice so as we're wrapping up jan if people want to find you online where should they go um, I think the way to find the best way to find me online is LinkedIn, you know, just a Jan Wilson Abernathy is the profile name, you know, come find me there. I am always there, always checking. And of course, you can also find me at, at Browning. It's just Jay Abernathy at browning.edu. And I'm happy to talk to anybody about any of these issues. I love talking about communications. It is really I came to this as a second career. Um, and I love it. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to speak to anybody at any time. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jan. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Take care.